Hi everyone, in episode 2 of Polarities, we looked at the work of No More Deaths and Tucson Samaritans, who provide aid for migrants in the southern Arizona desert. If you haven't already listened to it, I recommend you go back and do so. Consider this interview a bit of a supplement to that story. One important aspect of the story we had to skim over was a broader background to the border crisis. To provide a better anchor for that episode, I wanted to release this full-length interview I did with Douglas Massey, professor of sociology and public affairs at Princeton University. At Princeton, Douglas is a co-director of the Mexican Migration Project, which was started back in 1982 and remains the longest-running and best collation of data on migration between Mexico and the U.S. And Massey's work really provides both the long-term and short-term history that's led to the current situation where migrants daily make that perilous journey through the Sonoran Desert and into Arizona. Her conversation here is pretty wide-ranging. We go all the way back to the invention of the border following the colonization, independence, and annexation of Texas, all the way to the recent shift in patterns of migration from Mexican migrant workers to Central American refugees. I think this interview is important because looking at the entire history of the border gives an idea of how far apart border enforcement and the reality of migration has been really for the last several decades. The most important point here, which I think is still a bombshell for too many people, and that's the fact that prevention through deterrence policy, which came about in the early 90s, far from keeping out migrants, has actually done a better job at keeping them in. That's a pretty staggering fact, to imagine that border enforcement is not only expensive and a humanitarian disaster, but that it's actually counterproductive too. Our main episodes will resume in a few weeks as we continue to look at stories of religious belief, borders, and social change, with a two-part story on the legacy of Buddhism from Southeast Asia all the way to Northern California. But in the meantime, we'll be releasing more full-length interviews like these, and we'll be making a lot of this content available to subscribers on Patreon. Polarities is an entirely independently produced podcast, and we want to do this without relying on advertising for as long as possible. This podcast isn't as simple as sitting down and recording an interview and then putting it online. It requires extensive travel, research, multiple interviews, and weeks of editing. And I want to continue to travel and do on-the-ground interviews and recordings. And without this American Life kind of dollars, I need support. Even just 5 or $10 a month will help me keep bringing you content regularly, as well as continuing on with the bigger episodes with the care that they deserve. So visit patreon.com slash polarities to donate. Anyway, end of spiel. Here's Douglas Massey. I've been studying migration between Mexico and the United States pretty much continuously since 1978. So I've watched the whole pattern and process of Mexican immigration evolve over the past four decades. And uh, starting around 1987, uh, we set up the Mexican Migration Project. And every year since 1987, more than 30 years now, we've been collecting data every year in different communities around Mexico and their destination uh, places in the United States and putting together a binational data file on patterns and processes of documented and undocumented migration between the two countries. And to my knowledge, it's the largest and most reliable and most widely used source of data, particularly on undocumented migration from Mexico to the U.S. Uh, last time I checked, we have somewhere around 6,000 registered data users from, from all over the world, really, but uh, also from all, all over within the United States, and including many people in the government. I also noticed, you know, kind of in addition to the hard data that you collect and, and kind of analyze, you also talk a lot about this invention of the border as, a, as an idea. And that really lines up with what I'm trying to do with this podcast about how borders don't just exist in reality, but also in the imagination, if not primarily in the imagination and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about going back to that sort of invention of the U.S.-Mexico border, like how in the public imagination that border was formed historically. 
Well, it was a long historical process. Uh, when the nation was founded uh, uh, in, in, under the Constitution in 1789, it was just 13 original colonies and 13 original states, and there was no Western land border that was anything anything that, like clear. And uh, as the U.S. expanded westward with the Louisiana Purchase and various other uh, uh, annexations, uh, eventually we ran into uh, first Spanish territory and then Mexican territory after the Mexican independence in 1821. Uh, and even then the border was very ambiguous and, and not clearly defended, not clearly demarcated on a map anywhere. Uh, and uh, beginning in the 1820s, right after Mexico became an independent nation, the government of Mexico sought to um, populate its northern states uh, with European origin settlers uh, in order to um, uh, colonize the land against what they saw as the savage Indians. And uh, so they invited in um, uh, Europeans, uh, but they especially targeted Americans from the south. And uh, people from the southern states really poured into Texas and became the backbone of this, the, the white settlers in that northern part of Mexico. Uh, and uh, me the Mexican Constitution, when it was signed uh, and, and promulgated after 1821, contained a ban on slavery. And of course, all the people moving, most of the people moving in from the south were slaveholders, and they were trying to expand cotton production, trying to expand the plantation economy into new territories. And initially, the Mexican authorities didn't really attempt to to uh, impose the, the ban on slavery in, among the new settlers. But as time wore on, it became clear that if they were going to remain in Mexico, at some point, the Mexican government was going to start enforcing the ban on slavery. And this is what really drove the Texans, the Anglo-Texans, into revolt against Mexico. If you've ever, ever watched the John Wayne movie on the Alamo, uh, Davy Crockett makes an eloquent speech about freedom and liberty and, and uh, the principle of a constitutional rule. But in point of fact, it was really uh, one of the first violent acts to protect the institution of slavery and see its extension. And so when they finally succeeded in, in, in their revolt in 1846 and, 18, uh, and became part of the United States, uh, and Mexico annexed the northern 40% of its country in 1848 under the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Uh, the, when Texas wrote its constitution, they baked slavery into the constitution, uh, copying the basic constitution of the United States. Uh, only it was a little more explicit at the state level, uh, really singling out slavery as something to be protected. Do you find it a little bit ironic? I mean, the, the, the foundation of of that state, I mean... I just think of Trump's quote, but in reverse about, you know, they're not bringing their best and they're bringing criminals and blah, blah, blah. Well, Americans are really bad at history and they, they tend to live in the present and have very dim recollection or even knowledge of, of what happened in the past and it's heavily influenced by what they're hearing today. Uh, it's, it's less historical irony than historical ignorance. Um, Texas really came into being as part of an effort to extend and protect slavery. Uh, and when push came to shove uh, and the Civil War broke out, they rewrote their constitution in the places where the U.S. Constitution fudged it and didn't refer to slaves. They referred to others held in, held in service or bondage. They just put slaves in, and they made it very explicit. So um, in 1846, when uh, the Mexican-U.S. War was settled, and then in 1861, when the Confederate Constitution was ratified, they really uh, were defending and extending slavery. It wasn't about freedom. And once the Anglo-Texans came into power, and especially in Texas, they really began to grab land uh, for which they had no title uh, and displace the former occupants and turn them into a, really a servile working class that was uh, ra racially discriminated against and eventually covered under the laws of, of Jim Crow. And uh, in Texas, in addition to lynchings of African-Americans, there was fairly widespread lynching of Mexican-Americans uh, who were seen as non-white and un unintegratable into American society. 
So um, when people talk about Texas and its freedoms and everything, they're really talking about white freedoms and white privileges. And they've always been very reluctant to admit Mexicans into the fold of what it means to be Texas, Texas society. And of course now, Latinos are the most rapidly growing population in Texas, and as they are uh, in the rest of the country. And uh, it's become a huge bone of contention, but most people don't even know the history of how Texas came into, into existence. And if you read the official history books, you don't get the real, real story. You get a, a very whitewashed uh, version of, of Texas and its, and its role in the American Union. That's the first time we really had something approaching um, a real border along the, the Rio Grande River. Mexicans, Mexicans called it the Rio Bravo. Um, but that river became the border. And the border changed as the river changed with floods and, and seasonal variations. But that became the border. But um, the, the border was just a line on a map. And in most parts of the actual landscape, it wasn't even demarcated. There were no, there were a few boundary markers here and there, but there was nothing to indicate when you went from Mexico to the U.S. and vice versa. And towns grew up along the border, and the people on the Mexican side and the U.S. side basically interacted seamlessly as a member of a single community. Most people were bilingual. It was a kind of a border community unto itself. And the first time the border was really enforced uh, in, a, in, a real, in a concrete way was in 1924 when uh, the Border Patrol was finally founded with about 300 members only to defend all the borders in the United States. So it really was a token uh, border enforcement concentrated mainly uh, at the, uh, the Pacific and then the Caribbean, Gulf of Mexico endpoints of the border. And in 1924, it was set up really to keep out Eastern and Southern Europeans and Asians to enforce the quota acts. And it really wasn't concerned with Mexicans very much. But that was the, that's the first time there was an actual attempt to enforce a border between Mexico and the United States in 1924. And then when Mexicans did begin immigrating to what was now the United States in the 20th century, I mean, despite that discrimination, you write a lot about how uh, the demand and media depictions even of these immigrants kind of shift widely depending on general economic conditions in the U.S., the labor market, etc. Mexican migration uh, in the modern sense, where you have large numbers of Mexican workers coming from the Mexican interior to work in the United States, really begins in 1907 when the U.S. Uh, reaches its gentleman's agreement with Japan Japan by then was a rising industrial power, and it did not want to have its uh, workers ignominiously banned from the United States as the Chinese had been. And so they negotiated with uh, the U.S. government, and uh, they agreed to stop letting their uh, citizens come to the United States as workers in return for which the United States agreed not to ban them from doing so. Uh, and that was a gentleman's agreement that, that saved face of, of both sides and prevented Japanese from coming in. And that's really when recruitment of Mexicans starts, because once the Japanese are taken out of the labor supply equation throughout the West, uh, sh shortages immediately crop up, especially in agriculture. They were the backbone of the, of the uh, agricultural workforce. And um, uh, so in 1907, suddenly you see rise in Mexican immigration. Uh, a lot of it wasn't even recorded uh, because the border wasn't even enforced at that point, and they would just come across. And the railroads in 1907 had long penetrated into Mexico. The railroads were owned by American uh, interests, and so when shortages cropped up, they just sent recruiters down the rail lines, which went north and south rather than east and west, because it was exporting Mexican products northward. Uh, and then they went down the lines, and the first place you really encounter uh, large populations is in west central Mexico around the state of Jalisco. And that's where the oldest migrants uh, from Mexico really originated from the west central states of Mexico. And um, it, it, incre it starts in 1907 and it expands rapidly after 1914 when World War I breaks out, 
which stops all the European immigration into the U.S. at a time when the economy was booming. And so Mexicans poured into the country. And when the U.S. entered the war in 1917, uh, Mexican workers were recruited by government auspices uh, as the government set up its own labor, temporary labor program. And then once the war was over in 1920, the labor program continued. And uh, in 1920, the U.S. passed its uh, quota laws really to keep out uh, Southern and Eastern Europeans, essentially discriminating against Catholic Poles and Catholic Italians and Russian Jews from the Russian Pale. Uh, and uh, that cut off the flows from Europe. And then during the 20s, which was a boom time, migration from Mexico really surged. Uh, and the 20s was also a time of recovering in Mexico after the Mexican Revolution. And so there were plenty of workers heading northward. And, and if you look at the rate of migration from Mexico to the U.S., it was higher in the 1920s than it was in the 1980s or 1990s. It's just that the Mexican population was much smaller then. And so uh, historians call that the flood tide of Mexican migration during the 1920s. And they were welcomed in America as workers for, uh, for fields, farms, factories, and, and so on. Uh, and especially in, in a lot of the industrial areas in the Midwest, they, they quickly replaced uh, the Southern and Eastern Europeans, uh, particularly in Chicago, which is where all the rail lines came together. And so they were easily recruitable into Chicago. Uh, and what happened then was in 1929, the recession hit, the stock market crashed, and the 1930s was, was depression. And suddenly overnight, um, Mexican workers who'd been welcomed and recruited became unwelcome and, uh, and were deported between 1929 and 1935. Some 450,000 uh, Mexicans were deported from the United States, including uh, many American citizens who'd been born in the country. And uh, because there were no laws limiting Mexican immigration at that time, most of the people were present legally, but they were extrajudicially rounded up, put in railroad cars, transported back to the border and just dumped across. And between 1930 and 1940, the size of the Mexican population of the United States was cut in half. And there was no migration during the 30s. And then in 1942, once the U.S. entered the Second World War uh, and found itself in another labor shortage as the draft proceeded and as war production uh, scaled up for the Second World War and union jobs and factories were going to going to white Americans, uh, they couldn't get people to work in agriculture. The the former Okies who'd been streaming out of uh, the lower Midwest in Oklahoma towards California were either in the army or in war factories. And so they went back to Mexico and said, gee, we're real sorry about that deportation campaign 10 years ago, but we could really use your workers. And that began the Bracero program, which lasted from 1942 through the end of 1964. And over the course of its uh, 22 years in operation uh, brought in something like 5 million workers uh, from Mexico to the United States. Uh, and during the late 1950s, it was running at about 450,000 workers per year migrating to the United States with temporary uh, work visas for work in agriculture and food processing. Uh, and then that all comes to an end in 1965. C Congress scraps the Bracero program uh, having come to the conclusion that it was an exploitive labor program on a par with Southern sharecropping, and uh, at the same time amends the U.S. Uh, Immigration and Nationality Act to get rid of the quotas that had blocked Russian, Russian Jews and Italian Catholics and Italian Poles and, and Polish Catholics from coming into the United States uh, and replaced it with a new uh, uh, ethnically and racially neutral system that allowed 20,000 visas per country per year to come in under family unification criteria and labor market criteria. So between the late 1950s and the late 1970s, you go from a circumstance where Mexicans had really unlimited access to permanent resident visas, and half a million Mexicans were coming into the United States and circulating for work before uh, in the late 1950s. And by the late 1970s, the labor program was gone and, and visas were capped at 20,000 visas per country per year. And really, after 65, that's the genesis of, of what became undocumented migration as we know it today. And you mentioned that even in the, uh, the 60s and 70s, when they started enforcing the border, that migration didn't really change that much. It's just that the, what were formerly legal 
migrants became undocumented or illegal migrants. So like, what does that tell us about enforcing what enforcing migration can and can't do? Labor circumstances, supply and demand hadn't changed along the border. There were still jobs waiting. And, and by over 22 years of Bracero migration, millions of Mexicans had acquired ties to U.S. employers. So very quickly, the flows simply reestablished themselves under unauthorized uh, auspices. And uh, from 65 to around 1979, undocumented migration rose. And, and by 79, it more or less peaked, and it never really increased much after that. It just fluctuated uh, over time in response to changes in the economy on both sides of the border. Uh, but that created the crisis of undocumented migration that began to unfold in the 1970s and has really never left us since the 1970s when it was first articulated by political entrepreneurs and, and politicians uh, talking about an alien invasion of the United States. They were framed as illegal migrants. And if they're illegal migrants, by definition, then they're criminals and lawbreakers. And that really begins the whole trope of criminality as defining migration between Mexico and the United States and the framing of migrants as criminals and as dangerous people that are a threat to America. You mentioned this kind of massive waste and inefficiency in border control. And that seems to go back to this failure you document of the prevention through deterrence method of, of border patrol. And I was wondering if you could talk about this kind of philosophy of border control and why it's been so ineffective. Border enforcement has never been a terribly efficacious means of controlling immigration. Over, over time, it has really taken on, on a life of its own. Um, the border patrol is really rather small and didn't grow very much from 1965 to really around 1985. For that 20-year period, funding was relatively flat and maybe even declined a bit in real terms, and the size of the agency didn't change very much. Uh, and there was a lot of migration back and forth, but it was it was mainly circular. So you were undocumented, you'd come to the border, you would pay $500 to a coyote or a border smuggler. He would take you from Tijuana into somewhere in San Diego County, drop you off at a 7-Eleven in Chula Vista, California, and you'd call your cousin in Los Angeles who'd come and pick you up. And and that was about it. Uh, when we started to militarize the border in 1986, uh, uh, we did this first under the Reagan administration with the passage of the Immigration Reform and Control Act, which did legalize uh, around 3 million formerly undocumented migrants, but it also began a rapid increase in border enforcement that was disconnected from the underlying reality of the actual volume of migra migrants coming in. And then um, in 1993, uh, uh, the Border Patrol chief in El Paso, Texas, basically on his own authority, uh, launched what he called Operation Blockade, which was an all-out enforcement effort within the El Paso sector to prevent people from going through the city on their way to jobs elsewhere in the country. And this basically stopped the people going through El Paso and pushed them to go around El Paso. But it was very popular uh, locally because um, people were growing a little tired of, of Mexicans coming through their, their, their city uh, on their way elsewhere. And that basically stopped all the traffic through the sector. The Border Patrol chief turned that into a successful campaign for Congress. Bill Clinton noticed that it was politically popular and then announced that he was, uh, the Border Patrol was developing and basing its new strategy on what they saw in El Paso. And so they uh, developed this new strategy called prevention through deterrence, where they would have massive amounts of force at the border, at leading at busy border crossings. Um, and the idea was to either to push people out into uh, unfriendly territory, hazardous territory, to discourage them from coming and to raise the costs and risks of migration so they wouldn't come anymore. And that became the official strategy of the Border Patrol really until the present day, just more and more border enforcement. And uh, rather than stopping migration, the, the massive militarization of the border that resulted from that uh, backfired. Instead of keeping people from coming to the United States, it kept them from going home once they were uh, in the country. So it, ra it did raise the costs 
uh, out-of-pocket costs and the physical risks of border crossing. The number of deaths increased. The price of border crossing went from about $500 to around $5,000. Uh, and, and people were pushed away from San Diego and away from El Paso. And the, and the flows were channeled through the Sonoran Desert into remote, remote sectors along the border with Arizona. And uh, that's the beginning of, of uh, illegal migration across Arizona. Prior to the 1990s, Arizona hadn't received significant immigration from Mexico since the 1920s. And so the undocumented population of Arizona grew. And the net effect was um, basically since you drove up the cost and risk of migration, people minimized border crossing. And uh, they minimized border crossing not by staying in Mexico, but by staying longer and longer. Once they'd gained successful entry in the United States, they had to stay longer to pay off the higher costs of getting into the United States, and they were reluctant to go back because they didn't want to face the risks again. And so basically the, the ultimate effect was to reduce dramatically the rate of return migration among Mexican immigrants. And so undocumented migrants from 1965 to 1985, about 85% of undocumented entries were offset by undocumented departures. And the population grew quite slowly after 1986, but especially after operations blockade and gatekeeper in 93 and 94, and the massive escalation of border enforcement. The uh, right rate of return migration back to Mexico plummeted, and the net inflow dramatically increased, increasing by about 86%. So um, we were spending 3 to $4 billion a year in border enforcement in the 90s and early 2000s, only to increase the net rate of undocumented migration because net migration equals in-migration minus out-migration. And our border patrol, border policy had no effect on in-migration, but dramatically reduced out-migration, thereby increasing net migration. And that uh, dramatically accelerated the rate of undocumented population growth. The undocumented population grew from around uh, 2 million in 1988 to around 12 million and by the end of 2007. And so um, it completely backfired, and we ended up with way more uh, undocumented residents in the United States than we would have had if we'd done nothing uh, along the border at all. I find this absolutely astounding, the idea that increased border control has actually kept in more undocumented migrants. And I'm wondering, like, you've been doing this for a long time. Has anybody really listened to you? I mean, it, do you have political support for these ideas, because even in the media, let alone among politicians, I feel like we don't hear this narrative hardly at all. Well, I've done my damnedest for 20 years to try to get the message out. And I've testified before Congress four or five times trying to tell them that when it comes to border enforcement, less is more. And the more you clamp down at the border, the larger that the population living in the United States was going to get. And on, uh, in Congress, there were people that heard me and, and believed me. Uh, I think Senator Ted Kennedy did. He had me testify before the Judiciary Committee uh, in the Senate. And uh, um, Zoe Lofgren, uh, who was head of the Judiciary Committee in the House of Representatives, uh, had me come and testify there. And they both uh, heard what I had to say, uh, but they their voices didn't prevail. And more and more people just found it to be a convenient convenient politically to pretend that the border was um, this line of defense that we had to defend at all costs for fear of being overrun by hordes of illegal aliens. Uh, it's important to bear in mind that militarization of the border has been a bipartisan operation. So it really began under Reagan, continued, accelerated under Clinton, continued under Bush one, uh, continued uh, under Bush two, and uh, and then was even continued under Obama, who in the first year in office, he in announced an acceleration in border apprehensions and did something that nobody had really done before, and that's ramp up tremendously the number of deportations from within the United States, all at a time when illegal migration, for all intents and purposes, already stopped. Uh, and people found it convenient politically to do these things. I'd go testify or I'd go give informal briefings on the Hill and staffers would come up to me and say, well, we know you're right and we know this whole thing is crazy, but my, my representative, uh, he's or she's afraid of the politics of this and doesn't want to get out in front. 
And so they just sat on their hands and let the whole debacle unfold, even though some of, some of them understand, com understood completely well what was happening. Others um, simply denied the reality. And I think that the, the hostility to science, to facts, to information, to data and evidence that we see um, as basically the policy of the Republican Party now was very much an evident when I would go testify, when I would basically testify before the House Judiciary Committee Representative King from Texas, after I spoke, basically said, we don't believe, a, you know, he didn't say this in exact words, but his his sense was, well, take your lying statistics and go home because we know we're being invaded and we have to stop it. And I encounter that attitude all the time. Uh, and if you listen to the rhetoric coming from the Republican Party, watch Fox News uh, and, and listen to some of the stuff going around on the, on, on the blogosphere, you'd think we we're being continued to be invaded by a million migrants coming in, and now they're being infused with the radical Muslims who want to impose Sharia in the United States. They live in this dream world that doesn't exist, but which is driving their emotions and hence their political actions. And it's for someone like me watching this unfold for the past three decades, it's like watching a train wreck in slow motion because I could see where it was all headed, and I tried to warn people in op-eds, uh, radio spots, uh, documentaries, interviews, TV spots, uh, testimony before Congress, all that. And uh, I was just completely overwhelmed by a counter-narrative that was um, deliberately placing misinformation and disinformation in the public sphere for partisan political purposes to mobilize uh, voters and to mobilize political support for a more um, conservative agenda. So it really reached its um, zenith under Trump. We've never had, a, in modern times, a campaign, uh, presidential campaign launched with the statement that the largest source of immigrants in the United States are rapists and criminals and, and bad hombres. Uh, and uh, he's only doubled down on that kind of ideology and framing since then. look at all the illegal migration, it's basically fluctuating around a net of zero. So the population of undocumented migrants hasn't grown since 2007. Uh, and yet um, uh, the crisis and the hysteria about the border uh, has continued, uh, not only continued, but ramped up, uh, despite the fact that illegal migration has been negative for more than a decade. Uh, and that tells you something about um, politics in the United States, where fear and demonization of a threatening other becomes a salient driving force for mo political mobilization uh, and for private mobilization as well. Um, at this point, the most rapidly growing portion of the American prison industrial complex is the immigration detention system, which is about two-thirds privately owned, made primarily by Geocorp and the Corrections Corporation of America, who've now made their name more friendly. They call themselves Core Civic, but it's still Corrections Corporation, CC. And uh, they were successful in lobbying Congress to put in a, a bed quota of 34,000 beds in the detention system filled every night. Um, so ICE is really compelled to go out and find people to put into the um, in, into the immigration detention system because government is going to pay for the beds no matter what. So we have the labor unions for ICE and the labor unions for the Border Patrol, Corrections Corporation of America and other private interests uh, lobbying for ever harsher uh, border enforcement policies. Uh, and tr Mr. Trump demanding funding for a 2,000-mile border wall for $25 billion when uh, illegal migration has been net negative or zero for more than a decade. And the Mexican population of the United States is actually shrinking now, and the only people at the border are Central Americans, really. The percentage of Mexicans is at an all-time low, 
And what we've seen in the past 10 years is the shift from a large labor migration that involved Mexicans, mainly Mexican male, male workers and some of their dependents, wives and children, coming in for work in the United States, uh, to that, that flow has disappeared almost completely. And now what we have are uh, basically refugee migrants escaping terrible conditions in Central America that really date from our own intervention in Central America during the 1980s and to depose the, con the Sandinistas in Nicaragua and prosecute the what really proved to be the last battle in the Cold War uh, in Central America and completely destabilize those countries. So the people that are now arriving at the border are basically family groups and unaccompanied minors. And so what's happened is over 10 years, what had been a flow of labor from Mexico has been replaced by a flow of asylum seekers and refugees, mainly women and children and dependents, arriving at the border. So instead of, it's not, we don't have an immigration crisis at this point. We have really a refugee and asylum crisis, a humanitarian crisis at the southern border. Uh, and if we deal with it as a humanitarian crisis, it would be perfectly manageable. But because the border is framed as this bulwark against a terrible invasion of dangerous people, our attempt to shut it all down and to arrest and to uh, and to enforce uh, makes all the problems worse and makes the United States look tyrannical in the eyes of the rest of the world, and particularly in Latin America. I wonder, too, if you think it's not just a part of this kind of ignorance of data, but also that it's so counterintuitive for people to imagine. Like, it's one thing to convince people that the solution that they thought was the best solution is not the right solution. But it's another thing to convince people that the problem that they thought was a big problem isn't even a problem. Yeah, well, one thing we know from cognitive science is that um, people build cognitive structures in their brain and if the information coming in has nowhere to fit within that cognitive structure, it bounces off. And it's very difficult to penetrate and make them understand what's going on. When I give a talk to general audiences in the, in the public, and I have 45 minutes to actually outline, line it, explain step by step how this happened, show them the data, uh, they understand pretty well. Uh, my problem is that I usually don't have 45 minutes to explain it to people. You get a soundbite or you have a 750-word op-ed or, or something like that. So it really requires uh, more of a, an outreach than is easy for someone like me to do. Do you think maybe one strategy could be, because so much of anti-immigration is really scapegoating, to kind of shift the problem away from immigration towards things that might actually be causing, you know, people some economic anxieties or social anxieties? Like, do you think that just sort of channeling that anger or frustration into a different target might be one method? Yeah, well, um, one thing we also know is that facts and information don't necessarily carry a political debate. You need a counter narrative. And I've tried to provide one, but really what we need is a politician of a national stature to get up and, and deliver a counter-narrative about how um, immigrants aren't the cause of these problems of increasing economic insecurity and rising inequality. They're much bigger problems uh, having to do with technological change and, and, and global trade and its effects and uh, how we might deal with that are much more difficult uh, issues to, to deal with. It's much easier just to throw money at the border and have a big show of border enforcement to make people think we're protecting their interests, even when it's having no effect at all. The fact of the matter is immigration is a really small part of the economy and it's much smaller than some of these big technological shifts and, and the effects of globalization and global trade uh, and, and how the benefits of globalizations are actually distributed. Uh, those are much more politically difficult tasks. And I think Things could have been different if Senator Ted Kennedy hadn't gotten a brain tumor in the first uh, two years of the Obama administration and, and died. He was one, one politician of national stature that could get up and defend immigrants and explain that immigrants were part of what America made, made America great 
and uh, how we headed to embrace immigrants uh, and make the case across the aisle. Uh, but it wasn't to be. Uh, and there really hasn't been anybody producing a counter-narrative. Obama, upon assuming office, uh, basically bought into the Republican narrative that the border is out of control. And so once you do that, um, you're, you're cooked. You can't really um, get, make any headway because you've already bought into the framing uh, of the border is out of control. So Obama comes into office, and I think his calculus is, well, I will ramp up border enforcement, and I'll ramp up deportations to show that I can be tough on immigration, and therefore my rational Republican colleagues will want to compromise, and we can reach some middle ground, and we can get some uh, comprehensive immigration reform. I'll, I'll come up our, part of the way, and they'll come back towards me. But that was never going to happen. The Republican Party basically swore a blood oath to oppose everything Obama did, and and do their utmost to make him a failed president from from day one. So why do you buy into their framing of the issue? You should get, you need to develop your own framing of the issue about why immigration is part of American life, what makes America great, all the contributions that come from immigration, and these problems of economic insecurity and inequality are really coming uh, from the way we're dealing with um, economic change and globalization, how we distribute the benefits of globalization, and uh, and why Americans are feeling so precarious in, in a system where the social security system is under threat, where we're the only developed country in the world where people routinely go bankrupt because they get sick. And uh, those are the kinds of discussions we need to be having, and, and we need somebody uh, to frame it in those ways. And I've been waiting a long time to find that uh, the person who could frame the counter-narrative uh, to focus on the real underlying problems and not pseudo-problems like immigration from Mexico. I find that to be a very common problem among the Democratic Party is there's an opposition to Republican policies, but there's always a kind of acceptance or usually a kind of acceptance of, of the way that they're framing a narrative uh, on a number of issues. Yeah, unfortunately, that's what I see. I see among some of the younger people coming into Congress a willingness to come up with a counter-narrative and uh, I'm hoping that that will bear some fruit in, in the very near future. If the Democrats are smart, they'd uh, embrace a very progressive agenda in the House, uh, fix Obamacare, uh, fix prescription drugs, add more funding for Social Security, uh, uh, pass comprehensive immigration reform, and just set up an agenda for what they are for and make the Republicans turn it down uh, and then run on it because I think those policies are actually popular and salient in the, around the country, but they seem to be afraid to, to articulate their own particular ideological solutions for the problems the country faces. specific steps do you advocate for in terms of maybe more the practical or logistical challenges of just processing refugees and asylum claimants? Well, we're making a mountain out of a molehill. We've dealt with mass refugee uh, migration before. In the 70s and early 80s, there were many hundreds of thousands of Southeast Asians coming in as boat people from countries that are much larger than the countries of Central America and with much greater potential for migration out. Uh, and we somehow managed to accept our responsibility for these refugees. Uh, we're the ones that went into Vietnam to um, basically uh, fight a, a colonial war uh, in the name of protecting the world from communism, uh, and it failed. And it, in the aftermath, there was a huge outflow of people that had throwing their uh, allegiance into the United States and, and its protective powers. And we stepped up to the plate and processed hundreds of thousands of boat people, redistributed them around the country. Uh, and now, for most Southeast Asian populations, like the Vietnamese are part and parcel of American life. The second and third generations are doing fine. They're integrated in. A few exceptions, like the Hmong, who came out of a preliterate culture. But for the most part, it was a big success and helped the United States uh, in a lot of different ways. We could do the same with Central Americans today. We're not talking about hundreds of thousands of people. We're talking about tens of thousands of people. And they're coming 
because of steps that we took in the 1980s, launching a, a contra army to topple the Sandinistas, funding death squads, propping up right-wing governments, training paramilitary forces, really facilitating a genocide in, Los, in Guatemala. Uh, uh, and that's the reason people are, are leaving now, because it never really recovered from our intervention. Uh, from after 1979, the GDP per capita, the gross domestic product per capita, basically income per capita, fell in absolute terms uh, and then languished and didn't get back up to its 1979 level until around 2011. And, and so basically as a whole generation of people with no economic growth and a proliferation of violence that's never really left after the violence of the civil disturbances. And if we admitted that we're part of the reason people are fleeing, and we just took those people and processed them in a humanitarian fashion, I think we could diffuse the whole situation and um, bring in people and let them make their way in, in the United States. The, the biggest problem facing us right now, uh, aside from what we're doing at the border, is that we have 11 million people out of status. And uh, a lot of these people are Central Americans. About 15% um, or so of the undocumented population is from Central America. And the Mexican portion is going down. And uh, the problem is we, there's no way we can legally reunite people with their family members in the United States. So refugees arrive at the border. They, they may have family in the United States, but they're unauthorized. And so there's no way to bring about a family reunification legally. Uh, the biggest thing we need to do really uh, is to find a way to uh, legal status for the 11 million people who are unauthorized. And if it were up to me, I would grant an immediate and unequivocal legalization to all the so-called dreamers or DACA kids, people who are brought in as children. Um, more than 800,000 have registered with Homeland Security and I've already been pre-cleared as posing no threat to the United States. Uh, so I would give them a complete and unconditional amnesty and then for people who came as adults, uh, set out a pathway to legal status, bring them up with a temporary legal status that gives them the right to live and work in the United States, and then set out a series of criteria they would have to fill to become permanent legal residents. And if you know Americans are kind of in a punitive mood, and if they really feel that we should um, penalize these lawbreakers, uh, the final step in legalizing could be to pay a fine to make pay their debt to society, if that's what's necessary. And Getting those people into a legal status would help us a lot. It would increase wages in the United States and give a and give a huge boost to upward mobility in the Latino population, which is um, really the future of America, and uh, would help the baby boom get on towards retirement because they're totally uninvested. And, and if they were really smart, they would want to legalize all these people so their wages would rise and their taxes would rise and they would be able to buy the houses that the baby boom is going to be vacating over the next decade or so. Um, that would be the logical thing to do, but so far we haven't really stepped up and done the logical or even the humanitarian thing. It's rare when humanitarianism and logic and self-interest coincide, but I think in the case of how we're dealing with undocumented migrants and how we're dealing with the people arriving at the southern border of the United States from Central America now, um, we're... Uh, we're failing on all accounts, both humanitarian and practical, and our own economic self-interest. When we look at what might happen in the world in the next few decades with climate change and, and mass migration, do we need to kind of adjust how we look at borders in a more abstract sense? There have been two big waves of globalization in, in history. The first wave of economic globalization was from 1800 to around 1920, really more 1914 when the First World War broke out. And that involved uh, massive international movements of goods and capital and information, but also people. There were no numerical limits on international migration of people. And so 50 some odd million people left Europe uh, for places in, in the Americas and, and, and uh, the South Pacific. So about 60% came to the U.S., and the rest were scattered among Canada, Argentina, Brazil, uh, Australia, and New Zealand, mainly. And that functioned pretty well as a global economy. When we set up the new global economy in post-war period, after the Second World War, and really it came to fruition in the late 1990s and early 2000s, 
we have a fundamental contradiction in that we want a seamless uh, global economy where goods and capital and information and services can flow, uh, but somehow we want to keep people from flowing within that globalized system. And, and it just doesn't work that way. And the more we try to finesse the contradiction by strict border enforcement, the more it backfires and, and the worse it is for everybody involved. So um, I do think we need to rethink how we conceptualize borders in, in an increasingly global economy. And um, the United States is in a much better position to, to deal with these issues than Europe. Uh, we're in the Western Hemisphere um, illegal migration from Mexico is over, and I don't think it's coming back. The reason migration from Mexico has gone down and really Mexican migration as a whole is of around zero uh, is because uh, of the Mexican demographic transition. Fertility rates fell from about 6.8 children per woman in 1970 to currently 2.2 children per woman, which is replacement level. And Mexico has become an aging population. There aren't very many people in the migration-prone ages from 18 to 30. The average age in Mexico today is around 29 years. Um, and the region below us as a whole, all of Latin America, is, is at replacement level or low. below. There are a few countries that are still above. But for the most part, it's, it's not a rapidly growing demographic region. And um, there aren't, aren't many failed states. The only real failed state is Venezuela. Uh, but if you go and look at what Europe is facing, below them in the Southern Hemisphere, there's um, huge rapidly growing populations in Africa and the Middle East, failed states right and left. So the potential for migration into Europe is just much greater than the potential for kind of mass uh, migration into the United States at this point. So it would be very easy for us to set up a, a hemispheric the Western Hemisphere, a hemispheric-wide system of migration and economic cooperation, that would be fairly mundane and actually quite salutary for almost all the countries involved. Uh, it's just you have to change the way you think about things, and you have to think about the Americas as us rather than us as Anglo-Americans and them as Latin Americans. Really, we're not all that different from each other, and most of the countries have evolved in such a way as to be very consonant with the United States. And uh, Mexico, for example, is was no worse off uh, compared to the United States in economic terms when it entered NAFTA, uh, as, say, Romania and uh, Bulgaria were with respect to the European Union when they joined the European Union and had labor mobility. So uh, I think it really requires a shift in thinking. Instead of migration prevention, you start to think about how we manage migration. Because migration is going to occur, we manage it in ways that benefit uh, all parties and would benefit American workers and um, our closest neighbors in, in the Americas as well. In the, in the entire world, despite all the, all the global inequities and all the problems, there's only about 3.2% of the world's population that lives outside the country of their birth. So people really have a lot of inertia and they don't move that much. And if you set up mechanisms by which they can contribute their labor under reasonably just and fair conditions and be temporary migrants, um, and they're very happy to do that. And it will work out and they'll go home and they'll actually build their countries at home. That was what was happening in Mexico really until 1986 when we started uh, clamping down at the border. That was the common pattern. That could be a model for how the world works throughout the country that uh, make it easy to come and go, and people don't settle. They work and they move back and forth, and it benefits both sides of the trading equation and both sides of the economic border. Thanks for taking the time, and and uh, I really appreciate the work that you're doing. I think it's profoundly important. Yeah, well, I count on people like you to help me get the word out, so I'm very grateful to you as well.